0: This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show.
1: It turns out all animals, including humans, get stuck in ruts. Ronald K. Siegel at UCLA, he's a psychopharmacologist, and he discovered that pretty much every mammal, including humans has found a way to alter their consciousness.
0: How, did, how does he know? Well, they started to
1: notice that lots of animals seem to be seeking out hallucinogenic plants on a fairly regular basis. Reindeer eat hallucinogenic mushrooms. Goats also eat hallucinogenic mushrooms. Dogs, NPR did a great story about dogs going after hallucinogenic... I and it's not all mushrooms. Jaguars will... Uh, go after ayahuasca baboons before they go into alpha combat over over females will use the iboga root of extremely powerful otters they will literally hit themselves in the head with a rock to alter their states of consciousness so this is everywhere in nature the question he asks next is the heck is going on like why
0: would this be So I've got Steven Kotler and Jamie Wheel here. Steven's been on this is your fourth time on I think for the podcast. You've been on for uh Abundance Bold, Rise of the Superman, Tomorrowland, uh uh and now Stealing Fire. And Jamie, you're welcome the your first time on the podcast. You guys co-wrote Stealing Fire all about how to find flow. So welcome.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks, thanks to be thanks. here.
0: And so do you do you agree with me when I say that there's been kind of two tracks in in your writing and now Jamie, you're you're along for the ride on, on Stealing Fire here and and of course Rise of the Superman. Do you feel there's been two tracks where you had this sort of global optimism with uh, Abundance Bold and and uh, Tomorrowland, where just the world is better than politics and media will have you believe, and then there's this other track of kind of internal optimism and and flow and kind of extra natural experiences with Rise of the Superman and and Stealing Fire, and now they're converging. I do think they're convert. First of all, um, Jamie is definitely not just along
1: for the ride. So much is stealing. Oh fire yeah, and I'm sorry. I, I didn't brain. mean that as. An I got insult. I'm sorry. I got to step in for my <laughs> yeah. partner because I like. There's no possible way I could have done that book without Jamie. Oh my God, so much of him is in that in that book. Um, but uh, I think you know my fundamental question has always been: What does it take to do the impossible? And the answer is usually some combination of disruptive external technologies, which is what we, you know, disruptive technology, and what I think of as disruptive internal technologies. So, you know, at the center of stealing fire are non-ordinary states of consciousness, of which flow is a classic example. Those are disruptive internal technologies. And I think if you're really trying to kind of level up your game, take on impossible challenges, it's usually a combination of both that gets you A to B.
0: Well, and, and I agree, and you have some interesting... Examples in Stealing Fire, but I want to just for the listeners define flow. Define what it means and what it does. For sure, uh, and and both. You know, I'm sure you have slightly different definitions. And
2: yeah, well, I mean, for for one thing, in Stealing Fire, one of the key differences between that and the Rise of Superman, which was explicitly about flow in action sports, is Stealing Fire is actually about the broader and larger category of which flow is a subset. And what we did, we were kind of searching for contemporary terms. A lot of them have loaded terms, loaded baggage. So altered states, non-ordinary states, etc. So we kind of went all the way back to the ancient Greeks, and we said, what What is a, a, a term we can use that accurately describes? All attempts to shift from waking state everyday consciousness into something different and we settled on ecstasis which is the old greek version of what literally means to step outside yourself it's the antecedent of the our word ecstasy um, but it doesn't have the sort of the connotations right that, that things do today so uh, techniques of ecstasis are the ones that basically take us from 21st century uh, worried well right overthinking things perpetually stressed, rarely present, and shift us out of those. And there's a, there's a very precise neurobiological signature to them. And once you see that, you realize, holy shit, that there's a, a wide range of otherwise disparate techniques and practices, ranging from meditation and mystical states to flow states specifically, all the way over to psychedelic states and more kind of edgier practices, smart tech, sexuality, you name it. And- so so let, let me ask you this, and I'm sorry
0: to interrupt. I'm a, yeah. I'm an interrupter a little bit. Awesome. So, so with Rise of the Superman, um, I think, I, I, I love the book, but I'm not an action sports guy, obviously. And uh, uh, I can appreciate that a lot of those guys in an extreme situation have to make life or death decisions faster than the speed of thought. And that puts them into these flow states where they they lose the sense of time. They lose, the, uh, you know, they, they're kind of able to make these amazing decisions so fast that it, it's a, a hyper experience. But I wanted to know... Well, what more about flow for creativity and for mental experiences like like even a programmer gets into that state of flow when they just sort of lose sense of time and they're just programming for hours at a time without interruption and I feel like with this book you're 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 telling me how I can get there more easily and and that's what I'm really interested in I want to well, sure. I want to go into flow. A hundred percent, hundred twenty percent of the time. Now, I know that's not you mentioned. You don't want to go overload. These are, you know, neuro even neurochemicals could be addictive. But like, what what is flow from a neurochemical point of view? Like, what's happening in the body? Who experiences it on a mental side, and and what happens? So interestingly, um, I'll go into the neuro, and we'll, we'll unpack it in a second.
1: Um, And let's get back to the definition for half a second because I think we leaped over it. Flow is technically an optimal state of consciousness, right? It's a state of consciousness where we feel our best and we perform our best. And more specifically, so people know what we're talking about if they're not familiar with the term, they may call it being in the zone or runner's high or being unconscious if you play basketball. But it refers Musicians experience it. Musicians experience it. Um, And it's those moments of rapt attention and total absorption where you get so focused on the task at hand Everything else just disappears. Action and awareness merge. Your sense of self disappears. Time passes very strangely. And all aspects of performance, mental and physical, go through the roof. Interestingly, right, flow has historically been correlated, as you pointed out, with sports, with athletic activities. It's also been correlated with uh, the more the performing arts, so being mm-hmm. in a band, um, that sort of thing, but uh, in our research, in the if you go to the Flow Genome Project website, right, you'll find a free flow profile. It's a traitology. It says if you're this kind of person, you'll find flow in these directions, hmm. and um, it's become one of the largest surveys, I guess, ever conducted in optimal psych at this point. Fifty thousand, I think, mm-hmm. people have taken it, and the vast majority, I think it's 48%, 47 percent, fall into what we call the deep thinker category, which is they find the most flow. Doing exactly what you do, doing contemplative, creative, thoughtful work. So even though, and this was shocking to us, like we were really radically surprised. I wrote Rise of Superman, thinking, "Hey man, action adventure sport athletes—they've got the market cornered on flow." And it turns out my own research disproved my thesis.
0: Well, but it's interesting though because when I was reading Rise of the Superman, I was thinking to myself, "Where are the chess players?" Because when you play a game of chess, for oh, instance, for sure. you're playing you're playing an essentially you're looking at a table of wooden pieces, oddly shaped, for six straight hours, th- and you and you love it. You love every moment of it, and you realize six hours just passed. So where are the, the, right, well, the, the and artists the way, and the creators? Yeah, I mean
1: our our friend Josh waiskin classic example, right? Um, he talks about flow all the time, and he's a chess player. And, and the funny thing is, and he's
0: a, a extreme
1: sport guy, extreme martial artist. But uh, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, who's often considered the godfather of flow, he's a psychologist, he was at the University of Chicago, he's now at Drucker. But when he started his flow research, one of the first populations he looked at were chess players. So um, where are the chess players? They're actually right there, kind of a foundation of flow. Um, but I, I do think that sort of that, that's that been lost a little bit in translation. And I think a lot of it is probably, you know, Phil Jackson, the being in the zone, that really sort of, and it wasn't, who's, I don't, Phil Jackson popularized being in his own idea. Um, I don't think he was the first person to say it, but that's what we started to associate with flow. But I think it's a popular misconception rather than what's really going on.
0: So yeah, so from a a mental point of view, I mean, you point out that a lot of these... Uh, innovations that have been happening in Silicon Valley and all over the world really are being developed by people who are experiencing also these creative states of flow. Like you guys went to Google and did all your experiments. It turns out Sergey Brin is like this master flow guy. (laughs)
2: Like talk about Sergey, what happened there. So, So the founder of Google. Sure, so I mean Sergey's so an interesting fellow, right? and and clearly more than just a, a really sharp head on a stick. And so but,
0: but I think most people wouldn't know that. Most people think, okay, they made a few tweaks to an algorithm and then they got lucky and they were at the right time. I think I, I think a lot of people relieve, they get stressed, oh, how I can't be like Sergey Brin. Uh, and then they relieve the stress by saying, "Oh, but maybe he just got lucky." They don't realize there's actually something more to it. And I think you and I didn't realize that until the, your book. And you guys have
2: that story. Yeah. Oh, so, uh, so, so a couple of couple of more interesting things about their background is, you know, uh, both Sergey and Larry um, are avid attendees of Burning Man, and they have been since the very beginning. In fact, everybody's familiar with those Google Doodles that show up on holidays and special special events. The very first one was a was a Picture of the stick figure of Burning Man hmm. over the Google symbol, and they were basically turning out the lights in Palo Alto. We're heading to the desert, and you know, uptime be damned. So, so that has been a formative part of both Google's culture and how they, what they were looking for as far as what does high performing teamwork look like. Because a lot of Google engineers would go out to the desert, they would build giant art projects, sound camps, all these kinds of things, and that you know, it was what uh, Stanford's Fred Turner calls communal vocational ecstasy. And that idea of what happens when we get together as a team, we drop our egos, we drop the divisions and separations between us, and we're performing more like Phil Jackson on the basketball court, the no-look passes and the alley-oop dunks, right? And so that's happening for engineers as well. And Larry and Sergey experienced that firsthand, brought on some of the earliest members of the Google team to share in that, and so attendance at Burning Man and contribution to these big, complex engineering projects out in crazy, harsh environments in the desert became a way that they sort of cut their teeth and became a way that they sort of forged the kind of culture they wanted to perpetuate. And so when they were, when the adult supervision came on, when they took on some rounds of capital, and when it was like clear that hey, these twenty-something guys need some help, you have to go hire a CEO. And they basically spent a year, you know, breaking Silicon Valley and pissing off a bunch <laughs> of senior executives, and, and, and basically just being kind of uppity, uppity young punks. And and they actually shifted their entire. And anybody who knows Google's, you know, was infamous in its early days for. Crazy brain teasers and Mensa-like problems that they would ask people to see who had the creativity, and they really were at their wit's end on how to find a CEO. And so they then they heard that Eric Schmidt um, had actually been to Burning Man, and they were like, and and Sergei, you know, went on the record saying we thought that was actually an important criteria because if he can handle that kind of environment, he's going to have a better chance of getting us. Mm-hmm. And so they basically auditioned him by seeing how well could he hang in the craziness, in the harshness, in the unpredictability, could he help them sort of shepherd that communal vocational ecstasy without stamping it out like a management consultant might have.
0: Hmm. But but then you talk, talk about when you guys went to Google to try putting people into states of flow, their employees, and he
2: tried, Sergey Brin tried uh, yeah, so, yeah out. So, so, you know, and just to rewind a bit, you said, hey, I'm a creative. I read Rise of Superman. I'm not an extreme athlete. So what about us, right? And, and what we realize is that even though you know, most of us aren't extreme athletes, we don't risk life or limb to get into these states, um, those athletes have nonetheless kind of pioneered some really helpful points. And, and there's, there's three of them, which is rich environments, meaning they're novel and unpredictable. So I have to pay attention to them. A wave is always breaking or changing. A big Alaskan mm. snowpack is different every day. It's not like a groomer at a resort. So rich environments environments. Um, Deep embodiment. I'm not just a head on a stick. I'm actually using my whole self and all my senses to be perceiving and integrating information. And then high consequence, right? And we found that so embodiment, environment, and consequence are three of the most- Consequence being life or death. Well, it can be life or death. It could be as Stephen constantly points out. Go ahead.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's really not. You need risk, but it's definitely not physical risk. In fact, you know, talking to people- what most, you know, and you probably know this as a speaker, people get on stage, <clears throat> the brain can't tell the difference between social fear and physical fear. They're actually processed in the exact mm. same structures. And the reason is, it's, it, it sounds crazy, like why would that be? But if you go back three, four hundred years, if you screwed up socially and you got exiled from the tribe, it's a capital crime. Was, you couldn't live on your own, right? You needed the tribe um, which is why I think Shakespeare called banishment the worst punishment there is. Hmm. Um, so social risk, emotional risk, intellectual risk, creative risk—all these things are phenomenal triggers for flow. So, for example, when we work with organizations, the Flow Genome Project, one of the things that we talk about is, you know, Silicon Valley clearly has you know a lots of faults, but one of the things I, I, I love that they've done is if you have a culture of rapid experimentation and if you have a culture where failure is a is a badge right it's a badge of honor you're creating an environment where people can take risks and as a result you're creating an environment that is going to drive more flow so if you don't have that fail forward fail faster motto right if that's not part of your corporate culture it is going to be a lot harder to turn your corporation into a high-flow environment. Same thing with rapid experimentation. Rapid experimentation, first of all, it gives you a lot of fast feedback, which is another kind of flow trigger. Um, and it has to do with it. When we talk about flow triggers, things that drive us into flow, Jamie mentioned three of them. Under the hood, there's they may sound like a disparate lot of things, but Flow follows focus. It can only show up when all of our attention is focused in the right here, right now, in the present moment. So anything that drives attention into the present moment, and there's a whole bunch of neurobiology underneath it, obviously, but anything that produces that neurobiology and drives attention in the present moment produces flow. So all the triggers we're talking about risk. Deep embodiment, right? We pay more attention to what's going on when multiple senses
0: are engaged, right? And, these- and, and the idea is, is that uh, again, getting into this state of flow is going to lead to higher states of functionality, productivity, creativity, and so on. Well, it's as, not, an, yeah. as an outcome potentially. Yeah. So, and, I san- mean,
2: and satisfaction. Yeah. Right. Right. So, if you think, it, I mean, this is back- why
0: people enjoy doing extreme
2: sports or the arts or whatever. Yeah, and, and there's, I mean, you know, Stephen just said, hey, there's social, emotional risk. There's all these kind of things. One of the ways most of us hack. Um, and create more risk for ourselves without even knowing it to motivate ourselves is procrastination. Yeah, so, exactly. So like a deadline in the morning will get me to sit up and pay attention because I'm going to risk professional liability, whatever social shame, whatever it would be. So if we're not completely fired up about a project, if we're under motivated, many of us will just intuitively stall and we'll stall until the point when I have no other options or I'm doomed. And that works, and you also see it with startup CEOs. So they get taken out the strategic acquisition, they get bought out by a big company. They've got golden handcuffs for two or three years, and they stand to make another five, ten, you know, hundred million bucks if they can just tough it out for those three years, living in a big company. And the number of them that walk away from those golden handcuffs is profound because they say, okay, they might not know it, but they are willing to say, I will leave millions of bucks on the table because I am out of that flow zone. There's not enough consequence. The feedback loops are too slow and low for me to get the very thing that juiced me building the startup in the first place.
0: Well, that's interesting because money then uh, doesn't serve as risky enough. Losing money doesn't serve as risky enough to trigger that state of flow, whereas uh, the fear of banishment, like you said, it was very interesting that the social fear and physical fear are the same thing. So when you take a creative risk, you're risking banishment when when bob dylan played an electric guitar for the first Absolutely. time in front of a folk festival he was risking banishment and that was a risk that propelled his his music but uh, uh, again, though, I, I keep getting back to the,
2: this this great story you have about Sergey yeah. Brin in in the book. Uh, yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, so I mean, and so one of the things that that Sergey has done is he's continued to um, build out and explore his whole you know his whole self. And and one of the things he's done is is seek out action and adventure sports. So he's done everything from you know taking the Red Bull Air Force and done, done skydiving to kite surfing to you name it. But he's also taken you know been training his tennis game with the Stanford tennis coach who we know. He's also been engaging in gym gymnastics. gymnastics training, and he's also been engaging in mindfulness and meditation. So, basically, we had, you know, back to those three risk triggers from the the action and adventure sports of consequence, um, environment, and embodiment, we worked with engineers to build these giant sort of adult play, extreme playground equipment. So giant looping swings that you know hang, you're hanging upside down, 20 feet upside down, and you're having to kind of pump around and around. The thing we always imagine we would try and do in elementary school on the chain swings, but you never could, right? And we hooked that up to biometrics. And um, in fact, at TED a few years ago, uh, Sergey was using the Muse headband, which is which is an EEG headband started by Ariel Garten and some other friends of ours. Um, by all means, check it out. In fact, they just debuted at CES last week. A new uh, partnership with Smith Glasses, where it's just it's like those snap glasses, but it's for EEG. So they're doing ba- badass stuff. So what
0: does it mean? I, I can um, measure my EEG yeah. while wearing the glasses? You can wear
2: just a, a designer pair of high-optic sunglasses with EEG feedback um, coming out. And then can screens. I,
0: um, as you've mentioned, it's possible in the book, can I start to then play with how I can manipulate my EEG to get a yeah, better state? It's
2: a, yes, a neurofeedback. It, does it tell you when you're getting into an EEG that's closer to flow? Yeah, and in fact, so what Muse has done, part of their genius is is dumbing down the complexity. So a lot of a lot of our sort of uh, high-end partners, research-grade, DARPA-level folks, they're doing crazy headsets with gels and all this kind of stuff, super accurate, but not very like low form factor, low <laughs> low usability. What Muse has done is basically create things that are accessible for everybody, and they're not just giving you raw data. They're saying, hey, here is for calm, here is for focus. They're actually translating into qualities that regular Folks would value, and then using those using those feedback loops through their algorithm, helping helping steer people into those states in real time. Mm. And and are people getting trained to get into those states? Yeah, it appears to it appears to be one of the more successful in the neuroelectric smart tech space. Mm. So there are others. There's there's stuff that measures heart rate and heart rate variability, galvanic skin responses. There's a lot of other things we can tune into. But I think Muse is actually pioneering that kind of accessible prosumer level. Okay, uh, so to this stuff.
0: so okay, so you you built these swings, and these yeah. swings are like like again, I'm imagining the the playground swing. You're saying with these swings, I can loop completely around.
2: Loop completely around. Which is scary.
0: It was super scary, and we have
2: gyroscopes. Have you guys done up. it? Yes. You've looped completely around. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, our ten-year-old daughter crushed it. In fact, she had she holds really? the record. She she did thirty-five loops in sixty seconds which was nudging the world record.
0: Wait, I would be scared to put my daughter
2: on something where she's looping 360 degrees around in 60 exactly. seconds. Exactly. Exactly. And I just used her as a test dummy. So, you know, that there, there <laughs> we have it. But but she, she she's an Amazon. Is there so, like
0: a mat just in case she falls or?
2: Well, well, it's it's all strapped in with harnesses and ropes and all okay. that kind of stuff. But the point being is 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 the the benefit of that other than just being fun is what happens when exactly the experience you just described, the whoa shit moment. I need to collapse into fight or flight. Right. right. And
0: you, you mentioned there's two points. One is the highest we've ever gone as kids, which yes. I, could, I could specifically picture it. Yeah. Like that point where you get like terrified all of a and sudden. And they're slacking
2: the chain and you come b- bouncing down. And right. You're like, yeah.
0: And then there's the point where you're, you know, vertical, essentially. Yes. You're upside down.
2: Yeah. And it's, and it's fascinating because you, you literally can learn more about people putting them on that swing and hooking them up to biometrics than a month of therapy. And mm-hmm. we even had like one of the actors who will remain nameless who plays Superman. <laughs> on the on the big screens, got on the thing and couldn't move it to save his goddamn life. He was literally like hucking and jerking, like no. It's only like four or five possibilities here to figure yeah, yeah, right yeah, it out. Exactly, but we'll keep it. We'll keep it vague. Right. But it, but it was fascinating, and and you'll see people when they get close to being upside down, literally like break at the waist, drag their ass, and what you have to do is you have to like drive your heart. And thrust your hips through that plane of motion to actually come through. And so what we saw with Sergey is we hooked him up to a heart rate variability monitor, got his baseline, which was steady, state, and normal, and then he started pumping. Now this is where it all comes together. So he already has a mindfulness practice. He had already kicked ass and was was the top of the leaderboard at TED when he was using the Muse Muse headset demo. And he's been doing and he's been doing embodiment and action sports. So he's used to a lot of these sensations. So when he first started pumping and he's he's trying to focus and he's trying to get a gun, you know, his biometrics went to hell. Right? But the moment he got the rhythm and the moment he got the sense of gravity and the sense of momentum, then he clicked into the zone and he ended up flipping it completely. And there's all sorts of LED lights and sounds. It's kind of like one of those county fair smash the hammer mm-hmm. kind of ideas. So, so, so he was getting that. And then he actually starts pumping backwards and loops it backwards as well. And the number of people that have, done, that have looped it on their first try is about 5% because you burn so much energy just trying, and people are jacked, and they're really, they're really nervous, so most people just flame out. And they might get it you know, subsequent tries, but very few people get it first time. And no one other than Sergey has done both forwards and backwards, because if you think backwards, you're pumping backwards, whooshing through the air blind. You can't see what's happening. So,
0: so then I wonder, and, and, and this is the question that naturally arises, which is, is there a link between the fact that he is so easily able to get into the zone, yeah. and he created the biggest company in the world? <laughs> Well, and, and you see that with Elon Musk too is is yeah. very much like an extreme risk taker physically. Yep. Yeah. So you know you see with a lot of these guys.
1: I think what you know to move it off a of flow for a second into the broader category of ecstasis, mm-hmm. I think one of and this is not our insight. This was Abraham Abraham Maslow's insight, but back in the fifties. But pretty much one commonality you see in almost any successful person is they found a way to alter their consciousness, they found a way to shut off their normal self and unlock these states. And Now, I'm not going to draw one-to-one correlations because that would be ridiculous, but what we know about these kind of non-ordinary states, they're states of heightened information. right? When we're in these states for neurobiological reasons, we are taking in far more information per second and we're processing it far more quickly and far more completely. We're trading conscious processing for subconscious processing, and and, and the limits are you know wild. If conscious processing, what your brain can do right now can handle. And this was uh Chick sent me high did the work on this, at the University of Chicago.
0: By the way, I've never known how to say his name before. Can you say it slowly? Chick sent me high. And, he wrote, and he wrote the book Flow. He wrote the book
1: Flow. He's considered kind of the godfather of flow psychology. And I should just openly admit that the only reason I can say his name correctly is when I wrote my second book, West of Jesus, I was on NPR somewhere, and I slaughtered his name. I mean, I— Mikhail, Jersey, you know, yeah. yeah. oh, And somebody <laughs> called up and went, hey, moron, me high, <laughs> chick sent me high. And I was like, okay, never going to forget that one.
0: Yeah, that's so, good. So, <laughs> yeah,
1: everybody goes through that. I went through it. Um but he uh, he figured out that as a general our conscious bandwidth what what the conscious mind can handle is about 120 bits of information a second
0: now what does that mean what's 120 okay, bits okay so to put
1: it in context when you are listening to one person talk so you're listening to me talk you're using 60 bits so if Jamie and I both start talking at once you're maxed out that's the if you're trying to follow us right she could be dancing naked in the window. You're not going no, to be. I'm process switching
0: it. the 120 bits. There. <laughs> you, you might be switching. Okay, fair enough. I
1: understand because that. science, because <laughs>
0: science, evolution.
1: Um, <laughs> but uh, subconscious processing, the, you know, the adaptive unconscious, and I, I'm using the adaptive unconscious. That's the term psychologists like today, and it sort of separates the like Freudian unconscious, right? The old idea about the unconscious to what we're talking about it now. Um, it. Has an unlimited processing capacity. We don't actually know how much information it can process per second, but it's it's essentially nearly infinite as far so, as we so. Can what's tell.
0: an example? Like, what's the most extreme thing you've seen somebody do in a state of flow? Either extreme sports or mental or whatever.
2: I'm well, pretty, you know, pretty, flow pretty flow much every, every viral video. Those people are awesome videos. <laughs> you know, where mm-hmm. people are are hawking giant you know bos- basketballs, you know, full court slams or or whatever it is. I mean, you basically see things that beggar the imagination. And once completed, almost couldn't be redone again it's everything from a hole in one to a perfect you know perfect musical composition I mean it's it's when everything clicks and there is fundamentally you know almost a frictionless environment and you know just, just to just to circle back and and Answer your question about Sergey. So, did Sergey build you know a multi-billion-dollar company because of his versatility you know across the spectrum of his physical, mental, psychological, uh, neurological self? I, I think you could say he clearly. I mean, if you take the counterfactual examples, you've got Reed Hoffman. <laughs> right at LinkedIn, bit of a portly fellow, not exactly that same model. And you've got Gandhi, skin and bones, but still very switched on cognitively and and, mm-hmm. and you know psychologically. So it's not necessary. People can cut those corners, but I think it is fair to say that Sergey, in addition to whatever core baseline intellectual, academic, and entrepreneurial skill sets he had, that by developing his physical self, that by creating what we what researchers call embodied cognition, which is not just a, a disembodied head on a stick, but it's a full integrated body and brain working together, that his resilience, that his flexibility, and that his creativity are probably heightened because of those steps he has taken.
0: I wonder though, like, again, I wonder if, you know, let's say someone's listening to this and they're thinking, well, I've never done, you know, kite surfing or parachuting or skydive, whatever. I'm sitting in my cubicle or driving to work. Uh, I sit sit in a desk by a computer all day. I want a shortcut so that, I can get into one of these creative states of flow. Um, it seems like again the idea of risk and full embodiment can still happen without being an extreme sport athlete.
1: Well, fundamentally, if you know, speaking of, in terms of flow triggers, for example, creativity is a flow trigger, mm. right? And and when I say that, what I mean really is the connection of ideas, pattern recognition. When you link two ideas together. Um, that releases the neurochemical dopamine. So you've done a crossword puzzle. You've gotten an answer right. You get that little rush of pleasure. Mm-hmm. That's dopamine. One of the things dopamine does is it drives focus. So when you're get when you connecting ideas together and it's sort of driving focus, and I'll give you a really classic example of this that happens to anybody who reads. If you're reading a book and suddenly something really strikes you, right? That you, you you read a sentence and you're like, oh my God, and it links to another idea. And suddenly your thoughts are spiraling. One neat idea is leading to the next neat idea is leading to the next neat idea. That kind of creative cycle, that's a low-grade flow state. That's what you're looking at. So creativity at a fundamental neurobiologic level besides, you know, the fact that flow heightens it, right? Like, and in, in the, and there's metrics on how much flow enhances our creative problem solving abilities and our high speed decision making abilities and things along those lines. Um, creativity itself is a flow trigger. So, highly creative workplaces.
0: Creativity with risk. I want to add mm-hmm. because it yeah. seems like there has to be an element of I risk banishment. Yes. And, well, depending on depend, the social fear.
1: Depending on how you define creativity, mm-hmm. right? And and there are various definitions. Um. But uh, creativity usually is defined as the creation of, you know, not just thinking up the novel idea, but bringing it into the world, right? Yes. They, they talk about it as novelty coupled with usefulness. Mm-hmm. Now, that may be not the best definition of creativity, and we could go back and forth on that. But bringing it into the world obviously yeah. creates some risk. And one of the things, if you, you know, want to train people to be more creative... People don't talk about this at all. You actually need to train people to take more risks. You, risk is something you have to practice at, right? You have to – if and it, and it, practicing could be, you know, microscopic. If you're the shy guy, right, just, you know, start by walking up to, like, one pretty woman a week and asking them what time it is. And next week, it's two people you ask that question, right? And you slowly build up your aptitude for taking these risks Um it you know it will filter into creativity. You are asking for like what what does Guy in Cubicle do?
2: You know mm-hmm. that's you know yeah. simple things and 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 super simply for like the person Monday morning kind of how do I get this without having to jump out of a plane? Um, I think probably the simplest most portable. Um, they're, they're almost going to be under, underwhelming because they're so obvious. But fundamentally, respiration, paying attention to our breathing is one of the simplest, cheapest, most potent ways to shift consciousness. And you can do it from, hey, I'm nervous, therefore my breathing has become really shallow and it's up in my chest and I've got really crummy air exchange. And basically the bottom third of my lungs is just pooled carbon dioxide. So my brain is getting signal, hey, 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 not quite all right here. right? need to panic further. So I, I, I And it becomes a vicious circle. So just deep regular breathing in a period of challenge or stress, Massive and transformational. You can then, uh, the SEAL teams that, that we've spent some time with, practice box breathing, where they literally, because they, they, they spend time underwater, they spend time in tense environments, they use it to basically say, how long can I hold my breath with ex-, like fully exhaled, which is actually much harder to do than with a lung full of air. And they practice overriding the fight or flight panic response. Because basically, when we have a panic response, like I've got to take a breath, when our brain is telling us that, we're only about halfway there. We've got, we've got twice as much capacity as we think we do. So, what those guys do to train their fight or flight response is to practice basically, can I hold my inhale for five seconds, hold for five seconds, exhale for five seconds, hold for five seconds? And they extend that up to 15 seconds, 20 seconds on the you know, side of the box. And what that does is it, is it primes them to realize, oh, I can override my primitive fight or flight responses. It's not, it's not like sword swallows, right? I override my gag reflex. Right, which is my primitive response, to do something impossible. And that's what those guys are doing too. So respiration is is massive and powerful. And then Stan Groff at, at Johns Hopkins, he was the, one of the original LSD researchers. After LSD was you know, rendered schedule one substance, he then moved into breathing, hollow, what he called holotropic breathing, which is just basically breathe deeply, r- deeply and rapidly for a period of hours. And wild and crazy shit happens. Mm-hmm. So you can say at the basic level, just Breathe fully when you're stressed, and that's a good thing. In the middling level, you can say like the SEALs do, practice overriding your panic response and become more comfortable in And, that and space. part of that is noticing your panic response. Many people yes. don't notice when they're panicking. <laughs> Absolutely, and of course, it all goes downhill from there. I end up with less oxygen. I end up, therefore, my brain is more more freaked, mm-hmm. and I end up in a death spiral mm-hmm. versus that. And then all the way to like Stan Groff's work where you can shoot the moon. You can have as visionary, non-ordinary states just by modulating your breathing as through any, uh, you know, external substance.
0: Let's stop and take a quick break. We'll be right back. So, so what are some other ways to kind of take risk without, you know, without it being so high stakes that you're at, you're really at risk? That's an interesting, uh, that's a, I mean,
1: I you know, I personally really, honestly, you know, not to take a page out of Brene Brown's book, but vulnerability is you know, a it's a really good practice for a lot of reasons, right? Um, a lot of emotional reasons and things along those lines. But by definition, being vulnerable, saying. Hey James, you know, last night I I couldn't sleep at all. I was I was up all night. I was so anxious about what we were going to talk about today. That statement, right? The vulnerable risk—that's a big risk for a lot of people.
0: Well, it's interesting you say that because uh, I was thinking of this when reading about a lot of the studies you mentioned in your book. There's an, another book, uh, Emotional Agility, by Susan David. I don't know if you've you've seen it, but um, she talks about how if you even write down on a piece of paper what you're what you're feeling vulnerable about today. Uh, versus a control group, six months later, the people who wrote down their vulnerabilities still feel a higher level of tranquility than the people who just were placebo. Oh, that's fascinating. yeah? Yeah. So vulnerability does have a big effect because even if you're not sharing it, it's somehow a risk to admit to yourself even.
2: Yeah, and, and sometimes it can be, I'm going to disclose. I mean, the, one of the best little uh, sort of mnemonics for this that, I, that I've heard, and sh- Stephen yeah. and I share it all the time, is, is play the game of who can play the vulnerability card first. Mm. So not just can I overshare, because that gets boring and dull too, especially if you feel like someone's recycled some shit they, they did with their therapist on a couch a few months ago, and they're just right. trotting it out to show how self-aware they are. That's duller than dirt. But can you get into the absolute present moment with somebody? And basically, give yourself permission to just have Tourette's, like episodic Tourette's, and be like, I'm really bored right now or I'm hearing you but I'm realizing I checked out about 30 seconds ago right but what I'm super curious about is the thing is is the question behind your question and the moment you actually get beyond dueling narratives or even you know woven narratives and you start speaking to the exact present moment then everybody sits up And that's a really fun way to play with each other and so you never have to have a dull cocktail party again which is like what do i actually want to blurt out right now and let me blurt it out compassionately and with some degree of skill but can i can i actually shock myself with what's going to come out of my mouth because it's going to be much more interesting for both of us have you tried it yeah all the time (laughs) Um, (laughs) Like what happens well i mean fundamentally um it it, you know it depends it depends like the less aware the other party is that you're wanting to play a game like that the more skillful you have to be if on the other hand everybody's agreeing to kind of play a similar game it can become fascinating you can be in line at lunch and you can, and you can be like hey i'm just noticing i'm really attracted to you and i'm just mm-hmm. curious about then she can be you know rather than be like smacking you cuz you're being a creep you can she can be like oh well i'm noticing that um i have no attraction to you whatsoever in fact what was that although movie? If
0: she's not aware and you say that that's higher risk it's definitely exactly it could put you in a faster Exactly, kind of excited
2: state. Uh, if she doesn't know, yeah, and then you get it's, its like that Ricky Gervais film. What was it, The Invention of Lying, or yeah, something? Yeah. Right, it's like that. I mean, it's fundamentally playing that game just for the thrill of it, and then you get to that place of you know intersubjective flow, which is you know uh, uh, what's his bucket Turner in Chicago called communitas. What happens when we both are Victor together Turner. in an in an unpredictable moment? That's exquisite. Mm. That's novel, and that goes back to what Stephen was talking about. Novelty is is you know half the half the fun.
0: So you talk a lot in the book about art, not necessarily artificial ways, but other ways to to kind of get these enhanced consciousness. I, I love your initial in your initial chapters. You talked about uh, what's the size of the altered state economy, and it's like four trillion dollars a year is spent on basically altering our states. It's it's and it, and it's not really. Altered states almost feels bad, like we're trying to to cheat in the Olympics or something, but it's a natural thing. Like People drink coffee every day, they smoke cigarettes, they take anti-anxiety pills, they take Adderall, whatever. So, um, sort of two questions tucked in
1: there, and I'll, I'll sequence them backwards. But uh, I didn't even realize it was two questions. You're, you're, <laughs> you're that in a state smart, of <laughs> man. Your kung fu is that good. Um, Ronald K. Siegel at UCLA uh, He's a psychopharmacologist, and he discovered that pretty much every mammal and some birds, so every mammal, including humans, has found a way to alter their consciousness. They found a way to change the channel on normal waking How, how does he know? How do you know when... Uh, well, uh, they start, what they started to notice is they started to notice that lots of animals seem to be seeking out hallucinogenic plants on a fairly regular basis. Reindeer eat hallucinogenic mushrooms. Goats also eat hallucinogenic mushrooms. Dogs, NPR did a great story about dogs going after hallucinogenic. I mean, it's not all mushrooms. Jaguars will uh, go after ayahuasca. Baboons, before they go into alpha combat over, over females, will use the iboga root of extremely powerful, but it's not hopped even...
2: hopped up on Mountain Dew, Chick. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's not even that, that. Otters, if otters, and I can't remember what otters' favorite drug of choice is, but if they can't find it, they will literally hit themselves in the head with a rock to alter their states of consciousness. So, this is everywhere in nature. The question he asks next is, what the heck is going on? Like, why would this be? And he's come to two conclusions. One, he's figured out that that the urge towards altering our consciousness is so powerful, he calls it a fourth evolutionary drive. And there's a lot of people who have since agreed with him, meaning our first three drives are sex, you know, shelter, and food and water, right? So, and the urge towards intoxication is as potent and powerful. And the question is, of course, why, right? Because you get, you know, cows on loco weed which is one of the things that they will go after um are disoriented they'll more vulnerable to predators they're more vulnerable to get injured by falling down a you know in in the field kind of thing lots of bad things can happen so why would this possibly show up in evolution and everywhere and it turns out all animals including humans get stuck in ruts and these consciousness changing technologies they call them depatterning, patterning in in Influences. In other words, they allow us to think creatively. They turn off our normal waking self, they turn off all the normal filters we apply to information, and suddenly you can see more information, you can see novel solutions. And so that urge that is is fundamental, right? And it makes a lot of sense. If you if you think about survival of fitness, right? There are two ways you survive. One, you can compete over scarce resources. Right? That's the competition model. That's the model that says we are competitive survival machines, and that was basically what we believed for most of the 20th century. But it turns out we're actually also cooperative innovation engines, and that's the other way to create more resources. Right? That's the idea in abundance where Peter and I say that technology is a resource-liberating mechanism. It makes more resources. Right? That's the other way to do it. So you can solve this problem of resource scarcity in two different ways, and intoxication seems to lead you to the novel solution answer. So it shows up everywhere in nature. It's a fundamental drive. And to bring this back to the altered state economy, when we started looking at this and and when we started researching Stealing Fire, you know, it sort of emerged out of our work with Flow, and we started, you know, meeting with high-performing teams all, all over the place. And while there was a deep interest in Flow, they were also deploying all kinds of state changing technologies beyond flow whether it was mindfulness practices or kind of some of the neurotech brain hacking practices or everybody was going to silent meditation retreats together or tantric sex workshops
2: or or stacking nootropics or stacking. Like Provigil and modafinil and Adderall and just basically off prescription stuff Right. yeah right or, or, micro-dosing. or microdosing with psychedelics we
1: were you know we kept bumping into teams of let's just say very prominent teams of engineers <laughs> at very prominent companies who were telling us, "Oh yeah, this flow stuff is great, but we're microdosing on a regular basis."
0: Well, you mentioned how many billionaires are microdosing.
1: So and, what, and, what are and they and doing? And
0: macrodosing. And <laughs> macrodosing. Well, <laughs> yeah. both. But, both.
1: but um, so to get back to the altitude economy for half a second before I jump into that other question, we decided we wanted to measure. We, we were looking and we were like, "Wow, this is this is really considerable." Let's just. What are we looking at? And so we decided we wanted to put a, a number. Peter Drucker famously, you know, tell, said, you know tell me what you believe and I might believe you, but show me your, your bank statement and your calendar and then I'll really know. And I'm paraphrasing that's not the exact quote. Um, and so we decided to look. We looked at the kind of the world's bank statement. We said, well, how much time and money and mostly money do people spend trying to change the channel on regular waking state consciousness? Now mind you, this figure, is it's not all intentional, right? So a lot of the stuff we've been talking about is is conscious and it's not addictive, it's not obsessive, it's healthy is what we've been talking about. But this, the healthy state economy just looks at our overall urge and the number we came up with and we were as conservative as possible. And I really believe that our number is probably half of what the real number is, but we tried to be as conservative as possible in our research, but it's $4 trillion a year. That's one-sixteenth of the global economy economy that's bigger than the GDP of Russia or India right it's essentially 25% of the US economy that is if nothing else it is absolutely a measure of how desperate we are to kind of turn off the voice in our heads and get like a measure of peace and maybe unlock this kind of creative information inspiration layer that that, that you that you can access through well either turn consciousness. off
0: the, the voice or or enhance because some of that's performance enhancement type stuff. Like coffee doesn't necessarily turn off the voice in right, your head, or no. Adderall doesn't necessarily turn off the voice. It kind of speeds it up. Whereas, exactly. it's like, let's say, marijuana or LSD will turn off or switch the voice in your head.
2: Yeah, and, and, and in fact, Robert... Uh, Robin Carhart-Harris at Imperial College of London has been doing some of the most contemporary uh, fMRI imaging studies on brains on LSD. And in fact, if anybody's seen those wonderful, you know, ubiquitous little color brain maps that have been making the social rounds, like "This is your brain on LSD," it's probably some mm-hmm. of his his contemporary research. And what's interesting about what he's been doing is because of the advancements in, in imaging tech, they're able not just to take a static snapshot, but start seeing seeing brain movements and patterns over over a period of time. And he's he's come up with two. Critical insights, because he was actually interested originally in studying the unconscious. He came in through psychology, and he was like, "Well, I'm kind of I'm underwhelmed by the Freudian Jungian, you know, way to plumb the depths. What if we can use a pharmacological primer and then reliably measure people in these clunky machines we have, the fMRI's? And what he what they found out was not only do the networks that support our self consciousness and self awareness disintegrate, and when you you lose a couple of nodes, it's a little bit like shooting down the Death Star. When you when you knock out a couple of the power towers, the whole thing, the whole the whole grid goes down. So we do lose our inner critic. We lose all those filters. So there's more we're willing to entertain much more of the incoming information, but also we get um, increased network connectivity across otherwise fragmented and isolated regions of the brain. So when you spoke to why might billionaires be opting to use these problem solving use these use these compounds as problem solving tools, it's that one-two punch that really seems to deliver some of the lift that presumably they're valuing. And-
0: Do you think they're using it tactically? And you, you address this a little bit in the sense that you can't kind of overdose on all your neurochemicals all the time. You have to kind of moderate a little bit to, to be optimal. So what's, what's, what's an optimal way to kind of take, take me? Let's say from this starting point, I want to start maximizing whatever consciousness I can get and creativity and so on. What should I do using every tool available, technologically, physically, mentally, pharmacologically? What should I do? Because that's ultimately the goal. That's what your research is all about, is how how to get me better. For sure. Because well, so, I'm selfish here. I want to be selfless, as, as you suggest, Flo. Well, I, I would start by, maybe you need
1: a podcast, and you should probably write a
0: book, and maybe if you <laughs> give away all your stuff, right,
1: and,
2: not, and, and don't live anywhere. Check. Okay, wait, okay, so he's done that. All right, I'm out of ideas. Jamie, what do you got? <laughs> yeah, well, well, funnily enough, I mean, that, that's, that's the last chapter in, in the book Stealing Fire, which is, you know, what's, what's the user manual? And grounded, you know, you, to, to try and address all of this in 30 pages is, is glib, but one of the simplest things we would say is create a hedonic calendar. So basically, take all of these state-changing or altering practices that are in your life or you'd like in your life, ranging from the super simple, like I sit for 15 minutes with my Headspace app and do a little bit of mindfulness every morning, mm-hmm. all the way to the shoot the moon. I spend a week at Burning Man or going down to Peru and sit, you know, sitting with a shaman or going to climb Mount Everest or an ultra marathon. Right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't really matter what the mechanisms are, but what's in your world. Take a look at your menu and then evaluate them Based on how much bang for buck do I get out of them, and and we even kind of include a bit of an equation, which would be the value equals the time it takes to learn it or or execute it times the reward. What do I actually get from it that's stable that I can actually roll into my life with measurable impact and benefit divided by the risk. And so our everybody's risk tolerances are different and and subjective. So you've got to plug in your own on that. But once you get that stack rank, you basically div- you, You've got five buckets. You've got what do I do every day. And those are probably foundational, positive, and supportive, ranging from flossing my teeth to you know, a session of yoga or going for a run. Right? I can't, you know, Things you pretty much can't do too much of. They're just net positive, but they're incremental, like flossing your teeth. Right? Then what do I do once a week? Right? Once a week is a period of mild shoot the moon, potentially a little bit of hitting that ecstatic button, um, but not so much that's going to leave me destabilized or fuzzy come Monday morning. What do I do on a once a month basis? Same drill as the as the Saturday or Sunday, you know, the sort of Sabbath, right? right? Like that notion of like what do what do I do to connect with highest sense of purpose weekly? Blow it out a little bit more monthly. So once a season, quarterly, and then annual, what's my absolute kind of bucket list shoot the moon? And that way, once you stack them and sequence them that way, you're, you're doing two things. One is I'm trying to maximize the likelihood of me doing all the positive things every day. That's my foundational stuff. Everything from once a week to once a year are probably the good things, the fun things that I actually probably want to put some buffers in. I want to present, prevent myself from doing them too much. Why? Well, because then you just get a little addled and cross-eyed. Mm-hmm. Right, And if you, if, if you keep going back to the wishing well without enough time and discipline to integrate, then you end up veering off the path.
0: And so what's, what's, the, what's the
2: outcome? What's the goal, if I could be so crass about it? I'd just say accelerated development um, and taking the information from these states and turning it into integration and then application. You know, so fundamentally, I mean, Stephen, you've talked about Csikszentmihalyi's research, right? I mean, the people that spend more time in these states generally report higher overall life satisfaction, and that's not happiness and contentment. That's greater resilience and capacity to can repeatedly do hard things mm. and power through them to to actually sort of earn earn my stripes, versus just trying to get to my happy place. It's
0: interesting how much of this is related, not just to happiness, but but risk. You know, and risk keeps coming up. That that risk is always a component of this, um, yeah. and, and and it seems like. You know, let's say whether it's pharmacological or you talk also about a lot of technological uh, uh, things like helmets you can wear on sure. these glasses, you know, it's all about kind of turning off that inner critic that is basically going to, the inner critics is where you, is what says, oh, you're taking too much risk. So a lot of it is about kind of training yourself to move past that risk in one way or other. I do think,
1: I think. Across the boards in high performance, there are a couple of non-negotiables. There's a handful of non-negotiables. And I think you, a lot of the high performance experts don't often like to say it out loud because you say these things out loud, they're in the business of selling things, and you're suddenly excluding chunks of your audience. So it, they don't get spoken that much. Say but it. Say if it. you're not training risk, if you're not training risk on a, on a regular basis— you're you're not going to get a to b right you're not it, it's just it's not it's a sort of a deal breaker so you're i mean your sense your acuity towards hey this is all about risk it's not all about risk there's a whole lot of other things going on but i do believe that one of the fundamentals in high performance is you have to be training risk you have to be training risk
0: and risk could be context specific though like let's say golf you know high performance golf players you know they're not taking life or death risks they're swinging uh you know the st- the whatever it's called well, the stick one of the things that we did <laughs> the the stick, the stick.
1: <laughs> want to buy a noun? <laughs> the uh, one of the things that, that you know emerged out of uh, out of our flow research and, and was that and it was or, this was originally a calculation i believe uh, it was again chicksmith high in, in a google mathematician who did the first round on this and, and we've tested it but uh so one of the bigger triggers a flow, sort of called the golden rule of flow, is known as the challenge skills balance. It says, I find the most flow when the challenge of the task at hand slightly exceeds my skill set, right? So you want to stretch but not snap, a little risk, and they tried to put a number on it. And the number they came up with was 4%, a 4% difference. The challenge is 4% greater than my skill set. So how do you quantify that well, in that's, many cases? Uh, which you can't mm-hmm. at all, subjectively. I mean
0: but like a sense then.
2: Okay. So but, let
1: me give let me give you an example. This is one way we I tested it. Uh for example, downhill mountain biking. There are obstacles on the down uh, you know, go down the, they're fixed obstacles. And so we did it with jump height. And if I'm comfortable Jumping a fifteen foot gap, right? That's my comfort zone. Um, There's no real challenge. I I can do that on a mountain bike. Well, what's four percent greater than that? And that's that's my sweet spot, right? And so the most important thing is, uh, and what's interesting, I I should point this out, like for people who are a little more timid, four percent is clearly it's outside your comfort zone. You are stretched beyond your comfort zone. You're going to be taking some risk. But for top performers, for high performers. When we deal with professional athletes or when we deal with the special operations guys, 4% is tiny to them. They blow by that without even thinking about, right? Like top performers will take on challenges that are 20%, 30%, like 40% what? greater um
2: or like just high altitude, low open night jumps, you know, or being in the middle of an ocean and getting picked up by a submarine that's moving at twenty knots, and they have to actually like fish themselves in by the rope underwater to get into the hatch. Like mm. those guys oh, are forever just, uh, doing. By ridiculous, the way, let, let's just put it kicks, let,
1: and let's know? just put it in you know in, in a sort of a business context, right? Um, instead of doing a project that is like a, a, a slight stretch for you, where you're going to be people who are who are real top performers will take on. Massive challenges. Oh, I'm running four companies. Let me start a fifth, hmm. right? These huge challenges and a lot of that with serial entrepreneurship is about chasing these states. Jamie pointed out earlier that you know the risk in entrepreneurship, a lot of what you see in startups a lot is they're very high flow environments. there's a hmm. there's a lot of risk. there's not a lot of novelty, complexity and unpredictability. They're actually much more embodied if you think about, startup, everybody's sort of doing everything and running all over the place and doing whatever. You're not just a head on a stick doing your one little job. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, once that startup starts becoming successful and stable, right, you'll see serial entrepreneurs immediately need to start another gigantic company and maybe, you know, they're doing it to chase a state mm-hmm. and a, a much smaller risk would be effective. Mm-hmm. What happens is, uh, and this is specifically with Flow, you um, too much anxiety produces a neurochemical called norepinephrine. Uh, norepinephrine is a focused chemical at, at low levels. It's really beneficial and it's pleasurable. At higher levels, it's anxiety. It's really uncomfortable. Anxiety actually blocks flow. So you're locked. So at low yourself.
0: levels, is it motivating? or? At yeah. like low what? levels,
1: it's very motivating, very mm-hmm. enjoyable. I mean, if you talk about Helen Fisher has done phenomenal work on what are the chemical cocktails underpinning romantic love. Kinsey Institute and Match.com's kind of overseeing uh,
0: hmm, academics.
1: That's interesting. Yeah. Um, and she's found that, and there, there's exceptions and more going on, but uh, it's primarily norepinephrine and dopamine. That's what we call romantic love, um, which is interesting. So, no, norepinephrine is it's, it's neither good nor bad. In fact, um, and this is Simon Sinek has talked about this uh anxiety and excitement are literally biologically or biochemically they're the same signature it's the the same thing is going on the only thing that's different is the frame you build around it how you interpret the sensation is really the only difference between those two feelings now once you interpret the sensation if you're like oh i'm feeling anxiety right and you start getting more and more and more norepinephrine because you're suddenly feeling anxiety and tends to cycle then you are, then it's a negative then you mm-hmm. then you really are but it will lock you out of more flow yeah so
0: and, and, but it a, sounds like though well, let's say you sense you're feeling anxiety how can and knowing now that this is the same thing as you know romantic love or motivation or whatever how can I kind of change honest my honest to god you, mindset. Can
1: do, you can literally just talk to yourself say I mean what I do mm-hmm. is when I'm feeling that sensation is that like, I remind myself I'm like you know dude anxiety Excitement—they're the exact same cocktail. You could interpret this whatever way you want, and for me, this personally, my own hack. What I find is ninety percent of the time there are certain times when the, the danger is real, right? Mm-hmm. And I and I and I want to be anxious, right? But most of the time, my anxiety—or what I'm calling anxiety—is I don't have enough information to know, right? Like I'm nervous about something because I've interpreted a single data point, and actually, to make up my mind, right? I need to slow down, gather a whole lot more data. And until I do that, I might as well be excited about right. it because it's going to be the same right. signal. Right. And it's a lot easier, I find, for me, to gather more
2: data when I'm excited. Yeah. Just- and, and, and I mean, a couple of super easy ones on the, on the physiological level. If you find yourself in nervousness, A, you, you said, hey, how, you know, 4%, that seems like an incredibly squishy number. How will we know? Well, one of the ways you can know is I find myself experiencing what I might label nervousness. I notice my heart rate, I might feel a little dry in my mouth or a little sweaty, or I might have the butterflies in my stomach. So you can check our physiology. And then once you notice that, you can do two things to shift it from an anxiety state into a highly focused state, which is the first one is back to respiration. Take a deep breath and exhale. Three times doesn't need to be fancy. You don't need to have a mantra. You don't need to do it. Just take three deep breaths, and you know, relax your shoulders. Just check because if you're experiencing anxiety, you have probably rolled your shoulders. You're probably hunching. You're probably not breathing. So deep breath, relax, shoulders back, relax. That'll do it. And then at the at the psychological level, um, do what Stephen did. In fact, I think Olga Kazana at The Atlantic wrote wrote a bit on this. But it's fundamentally when you notice I'm scared or I'm anxious, literally overwrite it and say I'm excited. I'm excited for this speech. I'm excited to step up on this stage and not know exactly what I'm going to say. I'm excited to have this thought that this might be going out to tens of thousands of people, right? So just literally a little bit of kind of cognitive behavioral therapy. Just 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 flip the switch from this physiological sensation feeds anxiety and a neurotic loop. To this is priming now. To me being alert and ready, and so every extreme athlete—that's another you know, lesson we get from them. If you ever look at alpine ski racers, right, when they're coming out of the gates and there's the countdown, boop, 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 and they go, they always like slam their mitts together, right, and bang their poles, and then they push off. Right, Michael Phelps famously, you know, he, he would stand up on the blocks and he does those giant wing slaps on his back with his arms, right. They, they literally, you know, Tony Robbins does all of his power posing and kind of stuff before he jumps on stage. There are ways just to prime and signal ourselves. That's so interesting. Make most of it not to try and get rid of it.
0: I mean, this might seem like a spurious uh comparison, but um you know, the the Force Awakens, the Star Wars movie, I don't know if you noticed the 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 bad guy, Kyle Ren, or I forget I forget his name. Uh he hit himself uh repeatedly before going into a lightsaber battle. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. I wonder if he look
2: you know, I wonder if Disney was kind of drawing from this yeah, type yeah. of studies. F- football players that slam their heads together, right? Mm-hmm. Boxers that, like you know, like literally hit themselves in the face a few times to wake up. What they're doing is they're taking anxiety and they're rewiring it into "I'm primed, alert, and ready." Well, let me yeah, let- personal example. Um, I'm
1: a, I'm a skier, and I noticed when I am excited and I'm approaching something difficult and I'm excited, I will shake out, like as I'm moving, I will sort of shake out all my limbs and wiggle my hips. Like, I, it just happens automatically, and it's putting me into my body, and I do it when I'm excited and psyched. I don't do it when I'm scared and coming up on, a, on something that scares me. I do it when I'm excited, and I noticed that. It's like, oh, you've I do this automatically, so now, before I walk on stage to deliver a speech, before I walk into the important, like, that's my trigger. That pulls me into my body. I just mimic... That's what I do. It probably looks ridiculous backstage, who's the guy wiggling his ass, right? But that's what I do because it pulls me directly into my body and lowers, lets me reframe anxiety as excitement.
0: So it's interesting. So again, it's like these are natural ways to kind of Combat risks in, or or increase tolerance for risk in areas you're already uh, a context expert in, and then combined with there are some artificial ways, like let's say a cup of coffee or more extreme versions of altered state, you know, drugs or whatever you could take, and then there's these, you know, you talk about these, you know, transcranial, you know, helmets and and so on. There's uh, technologies now that are developing to kind of help to trigger this flow state. Where where do you see is the ultimate Outcome of this? Are we going to all walk around as essentially supermen? You know, as you suggest in your in your last book, uh, uh,
2: is that is that the outcome that's going to happen? Are we already getting there? Yeah, I mean, to me, I think, I mean, my hunch is it's a little gonna be, bit like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. I mean, you, we're going to have these wild-ass adventures, going to you know, access all sorts of terrain that is uh, phenomenal and almost fantastical, and on the other hand, be right back at home seeing it for the first time.
0: Because like virtual reality, like and you even mentioned in our last podcast, virtual reality, it fires off all of these neurochemicals, and, you do, mm-hmm. and you, your brain thinks that's what's happening. So yeah. you can trigger these with actually lower risk, but still uh, your brain thinks it's taking the risk. Yeah. Well, think about video games.
1: I mean, video games are, are are phenomenal flow trigger, right? There's a, we don't even have to go into VR. There's a, there's a long, you know, history of uh, of literature surrounding video games as a flow trigger, and they they build, you know, it's it's a known industry standard essentially, even though it's not quite measurable yet. That the more flow a game produces, the more it's going to sell, and they will use that challenge skill sweet spot, the golden rule of flow. Um, exact 4% scale, they will use that to build, to build in, built into games. So, games are built along a challenge pyramid, right? It starts out easier, gets a little harder, a little harder, a little harder. They're kicking it up 4% of, the time, 4% mm. of the time, 4% of time, 4% of time. Drives engagement, drives flow, and it also turns out drives sales, <laughs> right? So, the, and this is, you know, we, in Stealing Fire, one of the things we, we talk about is the commercialization dangers that surround these non ordinary states of consciousness because they absolutely feel amazingly good, but they can also be used to sell us stuff that maybe we don't need. Yeah. Um, and there's a long history of that.
2: Like, what's another example of commercial besides well, I mean, video at, games? The, the or, entire or, or, field or, of neuromarketing. So, mm-hmm. if, in fact, uh, Kevin Kelly wrote something in Wired last year on, on Oculus and uh, Magic Leap, so the kind mm-hmm. of two darlings of the moment in that space. And he was basically saying, look, if, if we're a little concerned about our smartphones, being sort of surveillance you know and, and all that recent stuff with like the Amazon Alexa and Alexa you know listening to all, every word in the house and all that kind of stuff and being subpoenaed in court cases and all that kind of thing. So these concerns of our digital society and our privacy he said then you know if if that's a, if that's a surveillance tool that we willingly put in our own pockets Right, that VR is going to be a surveillance state we voluntarily enter because what's happening in VR already, it's all in the name of improved user experience, but the ability to also turn it into commerce is seamless and happening as well, yeah. which is what's happening to my pupil dilation because my pupil dilation is directly correlated with norepinephrine in my system. Mm. What's happening to the micromuscles of my face? What happens to my eye gaze and where I linger? All of these biometrics and, and, and the more we give willingly to create an improved user experience in these immersive realms is going to be the more biometric and psychological data that can be then captured and rolled back to us. So If we think retargeted ads following us around the internet is, is a little invasive, there's going to be, we're going to basically be basically saying, here I am, I am an open book, play me. Like a strings, and we won't even know when those buttons are being pushed by a and for what. I'm fine with that. Like <laughs> I just
0: want to be an improved yeah. person, so I'm I'm okay if they steal all my information, whatever. Just as long as I don't go to jail for anything that happens in a virtual reality, uh-huh. I'm good. But uh, you mentioned in the book, though, almost even the promise of transformation is enough to get people to say. Uh, I guess it triggers some dopamine like, in the way like, oh, there's the, the mushroom that I want to eat. Like,
2: Even the promise of transformation will get you to buy something. Yeah, we jokingly sort of call that Maslow's pyramid scheme. <laughs> you know, the idea of what happens when the, the yearning for self-transcendence can be co-opted by otherwise cynical transactional commerce. And, and that is absolutely there. So we would just advocate if, if, you know, if, if there's nothing else that comes out of reading Stealing Fire, it would be a, a plug for cognitive literacy. You know, understand how our bodies and brains interact, understand the mechanisms of action, the neurobiology, and understand who else is trying to rent space with or without our own permission in our own heads.
0: Well, I think I think that's a great point. And we see this in the um, kind of the, just a huge domination of the news cycle this past election took uh, that really that and, you know. I bring it up only because we haven't brought it up at all in this because it's it's kind of completely irrelevant. It's irrelevant to the discussions in in bold and abundance, and it's irrelevant to these discussions. There was of an low- election.
1: Hmm. I'm sorry. There was an election,
0: <laughs> right? Exactly. It has nothing to do with anything. Uh, it, when when you when you realize the pace of innovation being driven at the same time by this pace in improved understanding of our brains and consciousness and so on, and and positive psychology that that's and how it's all connected. So I think. I think these innovations are happening faster than anything that can basically slow them down. Well, you know, it's interesting. There's definitely parallels. So in abundance, we talked about
1: four emerging forces that give us a chance to solve grand global challenges for the first time, right? In Stealing Fire, we talk about four emerging forces, psychology, neurobiology, technology, and pharmacology that are Unlocking all these internal technologies, right? These internal disruptive technologies, and and all four of those, you can make the case if if in psychology, I'll, I'll, I'll explain. All four, I think, are starting to advance exponentially, and one of the they're all becoming information sciences. In psychology, you see it with big data. Psychology has become a big data science. For example, our flow profile that has fifty thousand users. Neither of us are our psychologists psychologist PhDs, and we, you know, created this survey, put it up online, we have, you know, huge database, you know, user populations that we can draw from now. So psychology is becoming a data science as well. And all these things are advancing exponentially. And as a result, you know, A, we're able to kind of map and measure what's happening in our brains and bodies when we experience the inexplicable. So that's new and that's neat. Um, these technologies are also bringing this stuff to scale. They're bringing it to the masses for the first time. And, and that's really, really incredible. And it's acceler- our argument is, you know, good or bad, it's accelerating our development. And let me kind of put that in kind of crazier terms. So uh, just to talk about flow, McKinsey, the business consultancy, did a 10-year study, and they found that top executives report being five times more productive in flow. So five times more productive is 500% more productive.
0: Means- How do
2: they know they're in flow? I think it was self-reporting it was and self-reporting over that okay. time. Yeah. yeah, it was self-reporting. Um, there, there, there are some subjective, uh, ac- you know, academically validated flow inventories and questionnaires. So that that's how that's they how they used. To. Like that's they lose the sense used. of
0: time. They yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So exactly. like ping me, let me report, and, and we'll aggregate.
1: Yeah, data. there's. I mean, you, you know, we've known uh, that there are, you know, depending on who you know who you agree with, um, there are seven to ten core characteristics of flow, and so they just you know it's essentially a checklist, mm-hmm. and. Um, so they, it's five hundred percent more productive in flow, and is what is what they self-report. And so think about that. That means you can go to work on Monday, spend Monday in a flow state, take Tuesday through Friday off, and get as much done as your steady-state peers. Twice, two days a week in flow, you're a thousand percent more productive than the competition. So clearly, from this conversation, you know our organization which is one of many who are you know training high performers how to get better at this and we're training businesses we're training companies and kind of the level up from you know these non ordinary states is incredible we're seeing huge you know we were talking about a productivity spike but there's a huge creativity spike there's accelerated learning we're seeing all these things so businesses, companies that are not doing this, these things, where the, some of the top companies, a lot of the top companies are really starting to and they're getting better and better and better because these forces are accelerating. The tools we have to work with are getting more robust, they're better, they're cheaper, they're easier to use. As Jamie was talking about with the Muse headset, right? Like these things are much more available. Top companies are using them. I, it's not going to be long before if you're not deploying these technologies,
2: you're not going to be able to keep up. You're not going to be able to compete. Yeah. Which... but but you know, also, I mean, James, you, you know, you sort of soft pedal that question, like, hey, what about the current political climate, and does this have any intersection? And I, and I would say, hell yes, of course, right. And so, I mean, when we were writing this book, we thought there was a ten-year arc, and then the election happened, and we realized, oh shit, this is it's on, it's on right now. And Tim, Wood- what
0: do you mean? Why why is it on right now?
2: Well, because I think we're we're all playing for mortal stakes, um, with with consequences for multiple generations, and even shifts you know shifts in governments. And anytime you have all three branches of government occupied by one singular ideology, that's you know that threatens to break democracy. That's not how it was intended. There were supposed to be checks and balances. When you have the appointing of you know lifetime appointments to the Supreme Court affecting legislation and and, and rule of law for decades. When you have long term global international contracts for everything from global warming to macroeconomic treaties and this and, and geopolitical you know inter- interplays of balance between Russia. China and the U.S. You've got lots of things. In fact, I read a good article. It was just basically saying that the, the post-war sort of Pax Americana, that the balance of powers may be forever broken and destabilized. Like any of any of the diplomatic adjustments to this current this incoming uh, administration are not going to be unwound at the end of four years. We, we are going to be forging a new normal. And so Tim Wu at Columbia, right? W- he was the coiner of the term net neutrality back in the day. And back in 2003, whenever that was, he wrote a great book called The Master Switch uh, a few years ago, which was basically arguing that any information technology Right from the telegraph to the radio to TV to the internet, um, and what we would say is ecstasy—the ability to shift these states and, and to access non-ordinary states more or less at will because of the four forces that Stephen was just talking about—is also an information technology. It's just the mm-hmm. most virtual one we've seen yet. And and Tim Wu's point is they all start out utopian and democratic. Woohoo! Everybody gets some, right? And they all end up hegemonic and centrally controlled. And so you know, if back in the '60s, um, the the the, you know, the rallying cry was the person—you know—the the personal is political. Then you say the transpersonal, what we're talking about with ecstasy, is flat out revolutionary. And so the ability for people to have non-ordinary states and access the information richness and clarity that they that they that they often offer is creating what you know what we would term a sort of agnostic Gnosticism. People are having certain verifiable truths as to who am I, what is this world about, and what am I here to do. But it's agnostic in the sense of I'm not gonna then become a fundamentalist, right? There's just too many data points here for any of us to commit that. Old fallacy but once we do that, what are we here for, and what are we willing to take a stand for and what values am I willing to live and die for so on the one hand, you could say, yay techno utopianism this has nothing to do with politics and on the other hand you could say this is just in time to create an open source um, irrepressible revolution in general decency civic engagement, practical applications you know and personal you know personal connection with that which matters most, whatever that is for every, every individual
0: well I very much agree, and I think this is a great book, "Stealing Fire." Stephen Kotler, Jamie Wheel, thank you for coming on the podcast, Stephen, for the for the fourth time. I'm always a reader of your books, so keep them coming. Next book, give you just give me a list of all the ways I can like train risk, and I'll be very happy. That would be that'd be a great because then I'll 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 do everything you say. So it's very nice St- you. Thank th- you. Th- thanks again for coming on the podcast. Thanks, thanks you for nice. having us.
1: For more from James, check out the James Altucher show on the Choose Yourself Network at
0: jamesaltucher.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you and it will only take 30 seconds or less and it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know. And you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now, and it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less, and if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again.